Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia. All right, so I just want to take a quick minute to let you know what's going on this show. We have Dr. William Davis, who is the author of Wheat Belly. I'm sure most of you know who he is or, or about the book at the very least. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. William Davis at the Revitalized Health Conference not too long ago, set up by Avena Originals. They actually set up this interview too, so I'm certainly grateful for them for, for hooking us up. He's, you know, he's a great guy. He really is. You know, unfortunately, I think doctors sometimes get a bad name. He is a real, real doctor. He's a cardiologist and they're not always the most personal people, to be quite honest with you. And, but, uh, you know, Dr. Davis is much different. He's down to earth and easy to talk to. And, uh, and, you know, I very much enjoyed this interview. He gives us a, you know, a long stretch of all kinds of different tips and results to cutting wheat out. You know, it's a, uh, and it's, it's proven. So it's not something that I do personally, but there's so many successful testimonials. It's hard to deny what, you know, what he's doing and just his approach. It's, it's such a professional and uh, I don't know for a better word, but down to earth approach that so many of us can understand and, and could appreciate. So it's clear why, you know, this has been such a sensation. Anyway, stay right there. We got a whole interview with Dr. William Davis coming up. Bye. This is Exploring Mind and Body. Naturally improve your lifestyle one show at a time with your host, Drew Tadia. All right, welcome to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. You heard all about him in the intro, so let's get right to it. I want to welcome Dr. William Davis to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So uh, we had the uh, the pleasure of meeting each other at the Revitalized Conference, and, and I had the opportunity to listen to one of your presentations. You know, it was fantastic to hear your perspective, and I personally think that you're not going to hear a lot of doctors tell stories that, that you tell. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> Well, I, I wish that weren't true, but I fear it is. I know it, it's true in, in Canada as much as it is in the States, and that is, you know, the healthcare community, physicians um, and other people in healthcare, are focused on hospitals and sickness and procedures and drugs. And, and a shockingly few actually pay attention to health. And I've made it my business to pay attention to health. And you know what? It makes you think and look at people differently, but it also empowers you over time. So that, that's been my focus for the last uh, almost 20 years. I like that. I like how you say it, it empowers you, and I, I entirely believe that once we start paying attention to our own health as opposed to what they're telling us, then you know we can have that power back. Before we get into too much detail, I'm sure there's one or two people out there that <laughs> aren't entirely sure who you are or how you got into this. Can you give us a brief background about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, I'm a cardiologist. I practiced, uh, actually early in my career, I practiced what's called interventional cardiology. So I was the guy who did angioplasty and stents and atherectomies and those kinds of fancy uh, cath lab type procedures in hospitals. I did that from morning till night. That's what I was trained to do. and That's what I thought I was supposed to do. It took a number of events to really dissuade me of uh, that silly notion. One of them was the sudden cardiac death of my mom. Um, and I learned that I, I began to recognize that this idea that heart health should come through a procedure, a hospital procedure, was ridiculous. That's just a place to deliver a very specific service. That's it. And so I started to ask, why can't we identify people early, in this case with heart disease, and put a stop to it, maybe even reverse it? Well, 20 years ago, those questions 
didn't have any answers. But once you start asking the questions, and I, I've learned this repeatedly over the years, if you ask better questions, you get better answers. You know, if your only question is, do you need a heart procedure? You're going to find out you need a heart procedure. <laughs> but if you ask, how can I never have heart disease or any other disease for that matter? You may not get the answer right away, but over time, the answers start to become evident to you. And that's what I started to do. And uh, trying to give people the power to put a stop to coronary disease inevitably involved diet. And the lessons I learned many years ago, in fact, I learned this myself, was that cutting fat in the diet ruined health. If you cut total fat, if you cut saturated fat, it screws up your metabolic pattern. I personally became a diabetic. I went ultra-low fat, ate only whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, and I became diabetic while I was jogging three to five miles a day. So I learned personally the hard way that cutting fat was very destructive. And I saw that when I gave people diets low-fat, as we were all taught to do, and even the American Heart Association, the uh, Health Canada, all tell us cut fat in the diet, you do that, and you mess people's health up. So I started to look for other ways, other answers. And by the way, I didn't have to invent a lot of this stuff. A lot of this is actually in the scientific and clinical literature. Uh, if you remove grains, that's what, it was the effort to control heart disease risk that led me down this path of removing grains. When you remove grains, you start to see astounding things. Now, I used simple logic back then. You know, I asked myself, what grain dominates the diet? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. You know, it's not teff, right? It's not millet. <laughs> it's not <laughs> sorghum. <laughs> There's one grain that dominates the diets of most Canadians, most Americans, and that's wheat. Wheat for breakfast in the cereal, pancakes, waffles. Wheat for lunch and noodles or in sandwich breads. Uh, snacks, bagels, pretzels, dinner, pasta. Wheat, wheat, wheat all throughout the day. Well, all it takes is a look at any table of glycemic index. A table of glycemic index just shows you how high blood sugar goes after consuming any food. For an egg, it's zero. For table sugar, it's 59 to 65. For whole wheat bread, it's 72. Whole wheat bread has among the highest of glycemic indexes of all foods. So I use that simple observation, I asked my patients to take all wheat out of their diet. And they'd come back a few months later, and they'd tell me, well, you know, I did that, and my blood sugar dropped, and the cause of heart disease, a very common cause of heart disease, is, is an excess of small LDL particles. Not high cholesterol, that's nonsense. And their small LDL particles would plummet. But then they would t tell me things like, but why did my asthma go away? Why did my rheumatoid arthritis get so much better I stopped three drugs? Why did my depression lift? Why did I lose 38 pounds and three inches off my waist? Why am I lightheaded such that I had to stop my blood pressure drugs? Why did my ulcerative colitis go away? So that's when I started to ask questions like, why, when I removed wheat from the diet of people to give them better control over blood sugar, thereby heart disease, why would they experience these transformations in health? And that's why I started asking, well, what's in modern wheat that allows these astounding things to occur when you remove it? How did you choose wheat? There's so many normal things in the regular diet. 
the North American diet. How did you choose the wheat? Like, was there something something around it that you knew that it, it was the wheat that you decided to take out first? No, nothing beyond the blood sugar effect. So we know that uh, the glycemic index, and this is in this is true. This was true in the original studies that came from the University of Toronto, Dr. Dave Jenkins' laboratory. He was the guy that first described the notion of glycemic index in 1981. And it's been corroborated literally thousands of times that the blood sugar-raising potential of grains, of all grains, uh, is the, among the highest of all foods. And this is astounding when you think about it, that grains raise blood sugar higher than nearly all other foods. Now, I... At that time, I also asked which grains dominate the diet. So you don't need me to tell you that millet just doesn't dominate the diet of most Canadians, right? right. And um, uh, uh, sorghum is an uncommon ingredient in most people's diets. But wheat is a very dominant uh, grain. In fact, it's not uncommon for people to obtain 50% of their calories throughout the day from wheat products. We people don't know how to get by without having toast in the morning or a sandwich in the evening, so it's clear that right. that dominates many of our diets. So it's not that I was trying to make diets perfect. It was I was just trying to identify the biggest culprit. Okay. And that's when I... But removing it, only when I had people remove it did it become clear to me just how profound the effect was. And at first, I, I refused to believe it. When I saw a few dozen people come back... These are patients I was seeing in the office. When a few dozen people came back and they would tell me these astounding stories of transformations in health, first I, I told them, I don't know why your Crohn's disease went away. <laughs> Must be a coincidence. The astounding thing was, even more astounding, when I, when I tried to understand what in the world was going on, and I started to talk to agricultural scientists and geneticists and people like that, it became clear that the real issue here were the changes introduced into the wheat plant by agribusiness and by geneticists. Such, you know, when I was in Alberta driving uh, from the airport to Red Deer, I saw massive fields of wheat as well as canola. <laughs> but if you take a look at that wheat, look how tall it is. It's 12 to 18 inches tall. And that's just before harvest. So fully grown, mature wheat is now a semi-dwarf variant. Look even closer. The seeds are very, very large. The seed head is very long. Now, those are external differences. If you and I could decipher the internal biochemical and genetic differences, you would see that dramatic changes have been introduced into the wheat plant by agribusiness. Now, they didn't do it because they, they were evil or wanted to screw with people's health. They did it for increased yield per acre and other agricultural concerns. The problem is extensive change, sometimes involving extreme or even bizarre techniques, but there's no mandate to test it in humans. You can, you can change a crop and sell it tomorrow at the grocery store. So this has a lot to do with genetically modified. Um, genetic modification, that phrase specifically refers to the use of gene splicing to insert or remove a gene. The changes introduced into wheat predate genetic modification, use okay. other methods. I point this out because, ironically, the wheat lobby criticizes me, and they say that, you know what, Davis says that wheat has been genetically modified. Actually, I never said wheat was genetically modified. What I said was wheat was altered genetically. 
using methods that predate genetic modification. Now, here's the part they don't tell you. The methods that were used were often worse in generating unanticipated, unpredictable change in the genetics of this plant. So, for instance, one method is something called chemical mutagenesis, the purposeful induction of mutations using toxic chemicals like sodium azide. They also use gamma rays and high-dose X-ray and some other methods to purposefully induce mutations. The problem is, when you do that to a plant or animal, for that matter, you can't control the full array of mutations. The method is too crude. So ironically, I'm no defender of genetic modification, Mm -hmm. but genetic modification is an an improvement (laughs) (laughs) over these older methods. But we've been consuming the products of these older methods for 40 years. And so just because it's not genetically modified doesn't mean it's okay. Basically, what you're getting at is is the quality of seed that turns into the food we're consuming is affecting our health much different than it used to before 40 years ago. Very different. We know for a fact. You know, this is about a lot of the health conditions that occur in us humans who consume this stuff. But part of it is celiac disease. Well, celiac disease has quadrupled over the last 50 years. It's doubled in the last 20 years and still on the increase. Why would that happen? So my colleagues are asking, how did humans change? Well, humans don't really change genetically or biochemically that much in 50 years, but the crops can, can change. And we know, for, we know for a fact, for instance, there's a gene in wheat. It programs for a protein called gliadin, and one gene is called GLIA-alpha-9. Uh, don't, remember, don't, don't memorize that, but that specific gene was very uncommon in the wheat of 1960. It's exceptionally common in the wheat of 2014. And this was a form of the gliadin protein and gene created by the efforts of agribusiness. So that's, we have a catalog of changes that have been introduced into modern wheat by the efforts of agribusiness that have implications for human health. So this could be one of the reasons why uh, celiac's on the rise, just because of that one gene, gliadin, is that what it's called? Yeah, gliadin, yeah. There may be other reasons. They haven't been fully cataloged, but we know that at least this one gene, and this gene is uh, the most potent trigger for the celiac response, we know that this one gene has increased dramatically in modern strains of wheat. Now, not to say that the only problem with wheat is, is celiac disease, because most of my message is that um, the majority of problems have nothing to do with celiac disease. So that same gliadin protein changed by agribusiness, for instance, uh, uh, yields small proteins, peptides, that act as opiates. And these opiates in everyday people stimulate appetite. All opiates stimulate appetite, like heroin and morphine, but the opiates from wheat stimulate appetite also. And that's why the average Canadian who consumes whole grains or grains of any form made from wheat in their diet is uh, caused to take in 400 or more calories per, per day, 365 days per year. So it is a very powerful appetite stimulant. So is there opiates in all grains? No. It's only um, grains that express this gliadin protein or closely related protein. So this gliadin protein that yields opiates can be found in wheat, rye, barley, and to a lesser degree, uh, it resembles the zein protein of corn. 
but the most flagrant is the one in wheat. See, the, all grains, this is going to sound weird to people who don't think of it this way, but all grains are the seeds of grasses. You know, when you cut your lawn in the summertime, I'll bet you you don't save the clippings and throw them on a salad at night for dinner. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you think about that. You know, it's green. Well, why not? Well, humans do not have the digestive apparatus to consume and digest grasses. This remains true of the seeds of grasses. So seeds of grains are all seeds of grasses. You know, some of the seeds of grass don't look like seeds of grasses, like corn, that big cob. That's not how natural corn looks, by the way. Natural teacent or maize looks like a grass. There's no cob. There's a seed head, but there's no cob. The modern cob, that succulent, sweet cob, is a, a collection of mutations created by man. So it doesn't look like a seed of a grass, but it is a seed of a grass. So most of these so grains, most of these, me? most of these grains, or maybe all of them, originated from a seed of grass. Is that correct? They're all the seeds of grass. That's right. So if I have a a, a wheat plant, let, let's take a traditional four and a half, five foot tall wheat plant, not the one that grows 12 to 18 inches tall, but a traditional wheat plant. At the very top is the seed head, and beneath the husk are seeds. So that's what, that's what wheat flour is made from, the seed of wheat. Likewise, corn is really the seed on the seed head. So all grains are seeds of grasses. And we can't eat grasses. That's why we can't eat the clippings from our lawn. We can't, when we eat wheat, we don't eat the leaves, the, the roots, the stalk, the husk. We only try to eat the seed. But I, I tell you this because uh, the seed also is largely indigestible or only partially digestible. So those, the gliadin protein is often remains intact. And by the way, when it remains intact, that provides the first step in creating autoimmunity. That's where rheumatoid arthritis lupus, type 1 diabetes in kids, multiple sclerosis, and about 195 other conditions come from, initiated by the gliadin protein when it remains undigested. So Now, some, sometimes it's partially digested, and that's where it's broken down into these small pieces or peptides, and those are the ones that act like opiates. So what happens when this undigested seed is in your stomach? Well, there's a variety of different proteins that resist digestion. So the, the gliadin, when it resists digestion initiates the process of autoimmunity. There's another protein called wheat germaglutinin. It sounds like gluten, but it has nothing to do with gluten. This is completely indigestible. So no human, no matter how big or powerful, can digest this protein. And as it passes through, it's a very potent direct bowel toxin. In fact, if I purify one milligram of wheat germaglutinin, which is just a, that's just a speck, I give it to a rat, a laboratory rat, its intestinal tract is destroyed. And the average Canadian who just includes a lot of grains in their diet gets 10 to 20 milligrams per day of wheat germaglutinin. Wheat germaglutinin also blocks many responses in the gastrointestinal tract. It blocks the release of bile by the gallbladder. It blocks the release of pancreatic enzymes from the pancreas, so it blocks digestion. And when you have poor digestion, you get effects like acid reflux and bowel urgency, or irritable bowel syndrome. And you get changes in bowel flora, and that has a whole set of consequences of its own. So there are multiple components in wheat that are 
indigestible. There are many others, like trypsin inhibitors. They all go by wacky names. But these are indigestible to humans because humans simply don't have the digestive apparatus to consume seeds of grasses, nor any other component of grass for that matter. Exploring Mind and Body with Drew Taddea, brought to you in part by DNALifeCoaching.com. You know what to do in order to reach your goals. You just don't do it yourself. Why are your dreams and wishes always waiting on the back burner? Don't just be, be your best. Contact Natalie today at DNALifeCoaching.com. One of my favorite things that you said in your presentation was labeling, like food labeling. And I guess the food industry kind of bothers me a little bit about how most of it is advertising and, of course, um, driving sales. So a lot of the products that you on your slides show, a lot of the products you showed gluten-free this, gluten-free that. And, of course, the products are low quality and they're probably going to hurt your digestive tract and cause all kinds of different issues. Can you talk about that a little bit and you know why you thought that was important to bring up? Yeah, so several issues in there. So one thing we don't want to do is we start to appreciate this revelation that modern wheat is a very destructive component of the diet. So we remove it. Well, we remove a big problem from the human diet. We don't want to replace it with another problem. <laughs> and that's what most gluten-free foods are. They are problems because food manufacturers in their enthusiasm, perhaps ignorance, to bring products to market have chosen four ingredients to replace the wheat and gluten. They've chosen cornstarch, which is still a, from the seed of a grass, right? But cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, and potato flour. So you, you now know, you and your listeners now know that very few foods can raise blood sugar higher than wheat products. So what foods are worse than wheat? Cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, potato flour. So gluten-free products are terrible. Nobody should be eating gluten-free products made from those foods, <laughs> made from those ingredients. So we want to place a problem, wheat, with good food, but they cannot usually come from these gluten-free products. And you, you raise the issue of labeling. We've got a problem. We've got agribusiness that sees fit to change foods, sometimes using very extreme and bizarre techniques. And they don't want us to know. That's, you know we saw that, for instance, in the U.S. In, it was a, a Proposition 37 piece of legislation in California that was going to require that all genetically modified ingredients have labeling on the, on the package. Well, in stepped all the supporters of uh, opposition to, to labeling, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Monsanto, the usual suspects, and they, uh, they ganged up together and created a large war chest and knocked down that piece of legislation by a slim margin because they, they flooded the airwaves with claims that the labeling requirement would cause a marked increase in food costs, which, of course, is ridiculous. But uh, that sort of, those kinds of tactics have kept a lot of um, uh, regions, states, uh, provinces from having labeling of genetically modified ingredients on their label. I think that's going to change. I think as more and more people like your listeners and you and me are, are starting to bring this out in the open and realize, you know what, all we want is labeling. We're not asking for penalties. We're not asking to shut down these companies. We're just asking... If you're going to put something changed in it, just let us know. 
and that way the consumer can make a choice. That's what they're terrified of, of course, is that if it's on the label, more and more consumers are going to say, I'm not buying anything genetically modified because there are so many uncertainties here. So we've got to keep on pushing. I think we're on the cusp of succeeding in legislation. Something I don't understand is these companies, they have so much money, like those big companies that came together and are making a movement to squash the movement, if you will. Um, but they they came together to push the problem away. They have so much money and they're so sure that there's no issues around labeling. Why don't they put their money towards research showing that these are safe foods for us to consume? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, well, you know, every the, the few times that clinical labs outside of agribusiness have have asked that question, it's looked really bad. So we have the Seralini study, for instance, from France, where they tried to recreate the 90-day data from Monsanto with glyphosate-modified corn in this case, and they could not. They found uh, uh, all sorts of pathological changes in the animals after 90 days. And these are the people that then extended the experience out to two years in laboratory rats, and they're they were given, their laboratory rats were even either given uh, glyphosate-modified corn or non-genetically-modified corn with glyphosate, the herbicide, or just traditional corn. Well, the traditional corn-eating rats lived two years, normal lives. The Both other groups, the glyphosate-consuming and the glyphosate-resistant uh, corn-consuming rats died younger of massive tumors, mostly of the breast. Well, once again, what happens is the, the researchers were harassed and all sorts of accusations were made, not of scientific impropriety, and then the study was withdrawn, not by the researchers, but by the journal. And you can, you can bet there were some attorneys' activity behind that that caused that to happen. It's not the first time it's happened, but when, whenever independent researchers have tried to recreate or examine the effects of genetically modified foods, They've more often not found adverse effects and then have had to endure the legal scrutiny of agribusiness, who, you know what, have astounding resources uh, at their beck and call. Mm -hmm. These are companies that have huge in-house legal teams, and so they take on a researcher or a farmer or the small guy, they can easily overcome those people because they have limited resources. So we're, that's why it's so important we have these conversations and then try to introduce legislation. Or at the very least, we vote with our, with our wallets and pocketbooks. Yeah, like I say that, that every time we go to the grocery store, we're voting for the foods that we want. So that's important to bring a up. Absolutely. That's exactly right. It's crazy. That's like something from a movie, <laughs> what you were talking about earlier. Like you have a small independent scientist or researcher and then someone who doesn't want that published. There's a whole lot of pressure on them not to. And as we see time and time again, it's not published and it's not recognized. A absolutely. And I, I fear... There's a lot more here that we don't even know, but I, what we do know smells awfully bad. Before we go, you know, is there anything specific that we missed? Is there anything that you really want to let our listeners know that could improve their health? Well, in my experience, this what sounds to be this counterintuitive um, message to eliminate all foods made of wheat. This, in my, this is the most powerful strategy I've ever seen in my lifetime. There are many good things to do in nutrition and diet and health. So it's not as if it's the only thing you have. There's lots of things you can do, like vitamin D, for instance, particularly at your latitude and, and my latitude in Wisconsin. Vitamin D restoration is a very powerful uh, method to restore health. 
But wheat elimination is this astoundingly powerful. More often than not, even if you thought something that had nothing to do with your diet, it often does. And this is a cheap and easy... There's no cleanse program to buy. You just don't eat anything made of wheat. And your listeners should know also, if they haven't read the book, the Wheat Belly Books, that there's a week-long withdrawal process. When you stop taking that Glyden opiate, you have an opiate withdrawal. And I won't kid your listeners, it's very unpleasant. It's five days, seven days of nausea, headache, fatigue, and depression. It can be very unpleasant, but then you come out of it feeling wonderful and then recognizing how awful you felt before you, while you were eating this stuff. So it's the start of a transformation in health. I have a lot of information for your listeners who don't, want, don't have the book, don't want to read the book, on the Wheat Belly blog, by the way. Yeah, I noticed you have a number of things out around Wheat Belly. Can you list some of the, the products or places that we can direct our listeners that want more information about this subject? The, the two most busy places are the Wheat Belly blog, where all new conversations and announcements are, are, are held. That's and wheat- then there's a Wheat Belly Facebook page as well. So that's wheatbellyblog.com, correct? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure meeting you in person and listening to your presentation. And I'm sure um, a lot of my listeners are going to, uh, you know, make some changes and, and benefit from the show greatly. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Exploring mind and body with True Forms, True Tadia would not be possible without the help from the following sponsors. AG Foods in Didsbury, Health Street in the Cornerstone Shopping Center Olds, and Shoppers Drug Mart, working together to help build a healthier tomorrow. For more information on True Form Life, True Tadia, or to find out how you can become a sponsor, visit exploringmindandbody.com. All right, so that's going to wrap things up for author of Wheat Belly, Dr. William Davis. Just a couple notes from our sponsors. We have Complete Truth Protein. That's a gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, GMO-free. It's a plant-based protein supplement. You could bake with it. You can throw it in shakes. You can throw it in smoothies. You can throw it in granola. There's tons of different ways. I like to offer our listeners exploring mind and body exclusively 15% off. So if you go to completetruthprotein.com slash shop, any two-pound bag is 15% off. All you have to do is enter in the code word EMB for exploring mind and body. So again, that's a vegan, plant-based, raw product that's going to certainly nutritionize and improve your body. And then I'm doing some health coaching. So you can check out trueformlife.com if you're interested in some online health coaching. I'm doing that through Skype telephone and email. So if you want to work with me a little bit and improve your lifestyle sustainably, I'd love to help you out with that. Just want to thank Dr. Davis again for coming on the show. I want to thank you guys for, you know, for your downloads and suggestions and tips. I'm getting more traffic coming in and and people being involved in the show. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank my producer, Jameson Brown, for all his edits. And that's it. That's all I got. I'm out of here. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia, in health and fitness for a better world. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia, fitness expert. To find out more about the show, Drew Tadia, or to listen to past shows, visit exploringmindandbody.com. 
Exploring mind and body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia would not be possible without the help of GDK Gravel and Sand. GDK Gravel and Sand, now offering all products in half and one yard bags. Give them a call today for more information. 1-877-335-2091.